Growing up, when I was a little guy in elementary school, my parents, they weren't following Jesus. And I've maybe mentioned this before, but they let me watch movies I shouldn't have watched. Movies that stole my innocence in all reality in some ways. And I mean, you don't let a little boy who's afraid of the ocean see Jaws, right? Like, <laughs> never wanted to get back into the ocean after seeing Jaws. Let me see Dirty Harry, Magnum Force, The Exorcist. And I'm like, my parents are in heaven, so they're not going to be too worried about what's going on right now. But I asked them before, what were you thinking, guys? Like, what are you doing? And they were like, hmm, we weren't following Jesus. Like, okay, I get it. So um, there are things in life that are always trying to steal our innocence. We're doing this series right now called Longing for Eden, and we're going through the book of Genesis right now. And as a church, we're reading the Bible together with the Bible Project reading plan. Um, if you're new or you you're, haven't been around for a while, you can go to our Novation app, tap, tap the tile, His Story, and it'll take you right to the, program, the reading program. It doesn't matter if you get a little behind or, or whatever, you can always fast forward, catch up, start later. It doesn't matter. The, the goal is that not to do the duty of checking off our list, but it's that we grow in our relationship with Jesus, that we understand the Bible a little bit better this year and have that habit of daily intake in, into God's Word. So I've been really enjoying that. And uh, but when you read through Genesis, there's some weird stuff. We had our monthly midrash last Thursday, and a few of us got together, and we were just talking about, like, there's some crazy stuff in Genesis. Let's, you can't deny it. Doesn't mean it's not true. It's how do we interpret these stories, these things that happen in Genesis, and how or if does it apply to us today? The Apostle Paul, in, in the book of Romans, chapter 16, verse 9, he says, be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. That is a hyperlink back to what we talked about last week in Genesis 3. Paul is, has the garden in mind. He has the fall in mind because the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is what, you know, they, when they sinned, when they disobeyed God, God said, all these trees are for for you to eat from, but I reserve this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that. If you do, you'll die. And we know the whole deception that came in and uh, Eve was deceived to be wise in her own eyes and same with Adam. And they ate from that, that tree. And if you remember the prophetic word that God spoke to the serpent, he said, uh, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head what we're talking about here. It goes back to these storylines that are woven throughout Scripture. So we're to be wise in what is good, not wise in our own eyes, but what does God say is good? And be innocent in what is evil. So when we, if you go back to last week and you see Genesis 3, when God exiled mercifully Adam and Eve out of the garden. And there was a domino effect that happened from their, their sin, their failure to obey God. And the first domino 
is the domino of deception. The domino of deception. They were deceived. In Genesis 3, 6, this is kind of the order of how sin happens and then the effect that it has on our lives. In Genesis 3, 6, it says, when the woman saw, make note of that word saw or circle it if you're taking notes, that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable, make note of that word, desirable, to make one wise, she took, make note of that too, from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. There's a, a, a thread that we see throughout, especially the Old Testament, of sin is we see something that's forbidden, we desire it, and we take it. That's woven throughout the Scripture. We see it, we desire it, and we take it. Sin is very deceptive. We can get deceived by sin. Sin, just like God, holds out a promise. God says if you walk in my ways, you'll have what real life is about. Sin is thinking, you know, God doesn't know what's best. I know what's best for me. Society knows what's best or whatever, culture. We get duped into being wise in our own eyes and this pattern, you know, of, of deception, of sin. It's kind of like infomercials, right? They promise you, hey, buy our product and you'll be skinny and fit overnight, right? It doesn't work like that, right? At least it didn't work for me because <laughs> I bought a few of those things. Garage sale material now. But sin holds out this promise to deceive us. But then we know its power it beats us down. It bites really hard. The second domino is sin in action. You get deceived and then we act out the sin. When you read in Genesis 4, directly after the exile of Adam and Eve out of the garden, um, you see that there was a door of some sort going into the garden or a gate and that Adam and Eve had two sons named Cain and Abel. And Cain and Abel are offering sacrifices at the door of the garden. And God approves of Abel's sacrifice, but he didn't approve of Cain. And it caused a jealousy to well up in Cain. And God could see it in his countenance. And God says to Cain, he says, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and he killed him. The first murder we see in the Bible, we see in human history. Jealousy led to anger. Anger led to bitterness, and bitterness led to him killing Cain. So deception, domino. Next domino, sin and action. And the third domino is corruption. Corruption. Genesis, it's not on your notes, but I'm going to read from Genesis 6, 1 through 4. This is, this is the deep end of the pool. This is the part of the Bible a lot of pastor preachers just avoid because it's kind of strange, but I'm not going to do that. We're going to try to tackle it and understand 
what it means for us. It says, now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, check this out, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, saw desire, and they took, then the taking of something that's forbidden, they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Okie dokie. <laughs> Nephilim, sons of God. Who were the sons of God? Well, if you compare Scripture with Scripture, you let Scripture interpret Scripture, the sons of God is a, a phrase that's used about divine beings, angelic beings that God had created. When He created the heavens and the earth before He created Adam and Eve, He created a, a heavenly family, so to speak. These divine spiritual beings who, who chose to fall, they chose to disobey their Creator. And like the serpent in the garden who came to deceive, the serpent in the garden is obviously some sort of metaphor for the evil one or one of these fallen uh, divine beings. And in the garden, the serpent was trying to mess up the plan of God by getting Adam and Eve to sin. And he, they were jealous of this unique relationship that human beings as image bearers of God were with their creator and our, our divine calling to steward the earth and to multiply the garden. The serpent came to try to screw that up. And God had a plan to fix that. And that's the good news of Jesus Christ. But also these sons of God were, came, these fallen beings came to mess up the plan of God, to mess up the bloodline and so forth. And, and I know it sounds a little crazy if you're new to the Bible. It sounds like some sort of thing you'd see in, in a Avengers movie or something, you know, mythology. But the Jewish people, especially at the time a little bit before Jesus in the second temple era of, of, of the Jews, they really studied this passage. And so we see in, in Genesis 3 brought death. Death enters into the world. This passage brought in depravity, corruption of the, of the greatest kind. You know, if you've ever read Romans, Romans 1 the Apostle Paul is more than likely referring back to the events that happen here in chapter 6. And so depravity is introduced into the world and these weird beings called the Nephilim, you know, are, that's where we see like Goliath as a giant was related to the Nephilim and so forth. And it, it asks a lot of questions like, well, if the flood flooded the whole earth and everything died and the Nephilim would have died, how did they show up in the book of Numbers? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. if, you tell, if you find out, please tell me. I'd love to, to hear more about that. But corruption came in. And it goes on in Genesis, fast forward to Genesis 6, 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence. 
God observed all this corruption in the world and everyone, for everyone was corrupt. The word corrupt is both an adjective and a verb. It's an adjective as you describe something. Hey, this system is corrupt or this this group is corrupt. However, you can describe something with that word, but it's also a verb that you can corrupt somebody, that you can be corrupted by, by something or, or someone. That's important, I think. So, today's message is titled, Ancient Problems, Modern Realities. What's going on in the, in the, the deception leading to sin and action, leading to corruption, it's alive and well today. But are you grateful for Jesus? Jesus came to deal the death blow to sin by nailing it to the cross, to death itself by dying and rising again. And by doing that, he stripped the authority of the evil powers, the principalities and authorities and whatever was going on in this passage. He stripped that authority. All authority is in Jesus Christ. We sang what a beautiful name. The name of Jesus is all authority in his person. So as you follow Jesus... You're walking in His authority and His power. That's why we can say no to sin. We can, we can say yes to all the good things that God promises us. Modern realities of ancient problems come in, in many, many forms, right? Just disguised differently today. So what I want to answer a question for the rest of our time together, because there's a lot there. And as we go through Genesis, we're not going verse by verse. We're hitting highlights along the way and, and, and the characters that are there. But how do we avoid the pitfalls of old? And this isn't on your notes, but never forget this. God's commands are good. Why? Because he's good. He is a good and perfect loving father. And when he tells us to do something or not to do it, you can take it to the bank. It's because he loves us and he's our creator and he knows what's best for us. I don't know what's best for me. I spent the first 25 years of my life being wise in my own eyes to just jack my life up. <laughs> Anybody relate to that a little bit? Maybe you weren't 25, but whatever. When we're wise in our own eyes, we make mistakes. He's good. So I want to break this next part and, and look at how does the New Testament tell us to deal with these modern realities of, of ancient problems, ancient things that are still modern things that are trying to corrupt our lives, to steal our joy, to steal our peace. So the first point I want to make is flee that which corrupts the mind and the soul. To flee something is like you run and you flee a burning house. You flee a bear that's chasing after you, right? You run. It's danger. You flee from something that's dangerous. In four places in uh, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us to flee certain things. Now, before I get into that, I want to show talk a little bit before I get into the things that we're to flee. I have a friend who says when, when you're preaching on sin, he calls it, ain't it awful preaching? <laughs> ain't it awful, the morality of this world? Ain't it awful about this person? Ain't it awful? Ain't it awful? And we were talking the other day, and it's like, 
because um, I had a little trepidation about this. This is the deep end of the pool. Um, I get to be the mouth, mouthpiece of meddling in people's business a little bit this morning. And it's not fun. But the truth is, when it comes to ain't it awful preaching, if it's not your habit, behavior, or issue, you go, yeah, ain't it awful. But if it's an issue, habit, or behavior that I'm struggling with, or you're struggling with, hey, you're judging me. Why, why are you judging me? Why are you condemning me? You don't have a right to do that. And I'm here to do neither one of those. I'm here to, to not be ain't it awful. I'm here to speak the truth and to be helpful and hopeful for all of us that want to follow Jesus Christ and put him first place in our life and put into practice how he says to live. Here's some ain't it awful. <laughs> Normalizing destructive behavior is so unloving. When we normalize that and we get duped by culture to normalize behavior which is destructive, that's totally unloving. Now the answer to that is not condemning people. It's being loving, trying to understand, listen, and opportunities to speak the truth. The church for far too long has made the mistake of thinking somehow we're the moral police of society. And we're not. That's not our job. Now, within the church, we do have an accountability to Jesus, the Spirit, and how God wants us to live our lives. But that's not our job to police people who say they don't follow Jesus. I think it's very important that we, that we remember that. We're not the culture police, but here's the flip side of that. We're not to be morphed by culture ourselves. And it happens because we're bombarded daily. Social media, news, TV, movies, music, we're bombarded. And so it's easy for us to get deceived and start normalizing behavior where the scriptures and the apostles said no to certain things. They said no. There's a, there's a teaching called the Didache, which is an ancient set of uh, observations on how believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus, were, were to, to live. It's a summary of the apostles' teaching. It predates even the apostles' creed. I, I highly recommend reading that sometime when you get a chance. So, what are we to flee that corrupts both the mind and the soul? First of all, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. The Greek word for sexual immorality is the word pornea. And that's where we get our, our word pornography is viewing sexual immorality. When someone that you're, you're viewing sexual immorality when you watch pornography. And we're told to flee sexual immorality. It corrupts. It damages. Anybody that was promiscuous, like me, before I knew Jesus, or followed after Jesus, or got married, it does damage. It does damage to our soul. Their sin is sin no matter what. But certain sins have bigger consequences on our lives. And, and sexual sin definitely is one of those. And, and we got to fight it. We got to flee from it. 
And we, you, you, what, is, what is God's plan for sex? What is his design was always one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage. Anything outside of that is what the apostles would define as sexual immorality. It's outside of God's circle of holy sex. Now, that's not to condemn anybody. And I'm not anybody's judge. I'm guilty as well. We're, we're all guilty to some degree. But it's important that we understand that Paul talks about, in his letters to the, to the Corinthians, he talks about fornication. Fornication, by definition, is sex before you get married. He calls out adultery. <laughs> adultery is sex with someone who's not your spouse. Um, pornography is an obvious one, and it's, pornography is, is degrading to people. It corrupts our souls. It messes with marriages. It messes with relationships. I would just challenge everyone, anyone that's in a struggle with pornography, because that is the most easy thing in the world to, to get in your hands because of a phone, right? The, the porn sites are the number one, more than Facebook, Twitter, all the social media things is the most uh, used platform on the internet still. It's terrible for us. And I get the lure of it, especially us men. We're very, you know, using our eyes. But it's not just a man problem anymore. There's ladies that have been sucked into this. And it's, it corrupts us. We've got to go back to God's plan of marriage. Marriage is God's blessing for a healthy sexual life and sexuality. And then Paul does talk about homosexuality and homosexual sex. And I would say this, that's outside of God's design, but somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction, zero condemnation, zero judgment. God doesn't command us to feel, He commands us not to do something. You can't control somebody who has same-sex attraction and, and I've talked to people, they've prayed and prayed and prayed and it never went away and this must be just the way I am and it all of a sudden becomes an identity. Our sexuality is not our identity. Our identity is in Jesus Christ, our creator, redeemer, and maker. N never forget that. Our identity is in Him. So if someone has same-sex attraction and you're following Jesus, don't act out on it. That's, that's, that would be God's plan is don't act out on it. You can't, might not be able to change how you feel, but God will give you grace in that struggle to not act out on it. Okay, Whew, that part's over. <laughs> but I'm going to be meddling a lot more here because Paul was meddling in my life as I put this together. In 1 Corinthians 10, 14, he says, flee from idolatry. Flee idolatry. Run from idolatry. Idolatry is a big problem in the Old Testament. As those of you that are tracking through the Old Testament, you're going to see that uh, man, Israel was called to have no other gods, don't make idols, and that was their struggle all the time was to follow foreign gods and idols and so forth. And idolatry for us today is probably people don't have statues <laughs> Carving, wood carvings or things of that nature. Um, but 
an idol is anything that replaces God being first place in our life. So anything can become an idol. Money, our 401k, the stock market, our houses, our cars, people can become an idol. When it, whoever or whatever replaces God as first place in my life, that's, that's what he's telling us to flee from. You know why he tells us to flee from that? Not because God's mad at you or me. It's because we're not getting the best life that God has provided for us in him being first place in our life. So we're to, to flee those things. 1 John 5.21, it's a good verse to put to memory. John says, dear children, um, he says, you know, don't worship idols. It wasn't on your notes, sorry. <laughs> and then the next one, so sexual immorality, idolatry, and then to Timothy, Paul writes this. He says, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But flee these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Flee the love of money. Don't fall in love with money. Don't fall in love with stuff. And the remedy to the love of money or materialism is pretty simple. It's called generosity. And it's understanding stewardship that everything that we have is on loan from God. We're managing His stuff. That's, that's what it is. Of course, He allows us to use it for, for pleasure and fun and that kind of stuff. But we're to be good stewards of what is His. Be good stewards. Generosity is the, the, the key answer. You'll never meet a generous person who says, I wish I wasn't generous. <laughs> that generous thing, I tried it. It didn't work out for me. You'll never meet someone who's generous. Brian preached a couple years ago on generosity and shared the story of the Domino's pizza owner. And, you know, multimillionaire, but he followed Jesus. And he wanted to, over a period of time, little by little, give away his fortune. And that's what he's in the process of doing. Did he pass away? Do you know? I'm not sure either. But a pretty cool story. He wanted to give away all of God's stuff back to good causes, feeding the poor, the church, etc., the gospel. And he did it. It's fantastic. He, and he's not saying to himself, darn it, I, I made a mistake. He's, he's living in, in a, the real blessing. And then the last thing we're told to flee by the Apostle Paul is he says, now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. What is a youthful lust that we're supposed to flee from? The Message Bible uses the word childish indulgences. And I immediately thought of this illustration. That if you have a, a toddler alone with a bag of Hershey Kisses, those things are going to get demolished and chocolate will be everywhere because there's no... There's no lid. There's no maturity to be able to say no to the whole bag of Hershey's Kisses. And it is, it, we just overindulge. And so overindulgence could be 
anything, right? It, it could be food, it could be whatever. And he says, flee youthful lusts and then pursue these, these other things. All right, the second part of what I want to share with how do we avoid the, the pitfalls of old that are still modern realities, all the things we saw working in violence and anger and this and that and sexual immorality, the second part is be on your guard. Be on your guard. King Solomon, um, you know, he was the wisest man who ever lived. And he wrote the majority of the Proverbs and other wisdom literature, Son of David. And, but a lot of his writings are later in life in him telling his kids, don't make these mistakes that I made. He gave himself over to youthful lusts. Like Solomon was a real player. Like if you, when you get to, to Solomon's life, like he was, he loved the ladies, man. And um, he, uh, he's, he writes the Proverbs. And in particular, there's this pattern of things that he tells his readers to, to guard themselves from. And you see this pattern begin in Proverbs 4, Verses, I believe it's 23 through 27. The first thing he tells us to guard is our hearts. Guard your heart. You think, well, what does that mean? Well, the heart is the inner seat of our emotions, our thoughts. From the heart come both good and bad, Jesus said. He says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So I want you to think of your heart like a well. If you owned a house and your water supply was a well, you want to guard that well. You don't want poison or icky stuff getting into your water supply. You guard that thing with everything you have. There's a, a story in the book of Kings about King Hezekiah. And the enemies of Jerusalem wanted, enemies of Israel wanted to poison the water in Jerusalem. And so he had people dig this, divert, divert his water, the water supply inside the walls of Jerusalem so the enemies couldn't poison their water. And I've actually been to Israel. And I don't, somehow it makes every message. Um, Jenny and Mike have been to Israel several times. Um, oh, we're going to go to Israel the fall of 2023. So save your shekels. Stay tuned on that as well. Um, but there, there is an actual still today from what Hezekiah did. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. And you can walk through it and the water is still flowing. Sometimes it's up to your knees. It's crazy in there. But guard your heart. Like Hezekiah wanted to guard the, the water supply for Israel and Jerusalem. Guard your heart. Keep your heart innocent. Be wise in what is good. Be innocent in what's evil. Second thing he tells us to guard is to, to guard your mouth. Guard your mouth. Especially when you're riding a bike fast and mosquitoes try to fly in your mouth. Sorry. That wasn't in my notes. He says, keep your mouth free from perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips. Let me just say right off the bat, so much more than cussing is what he has in mind here. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. 
with hogwash, right? That's not true. Words have the power to heal and the power to hurt, to be used for good or bad, positive or negative. He doesn't want us gossiping. Guard your mouth from gossip. Guard your mouth from how you speak to one another. Because you can get nine good things spoken to you, you get one negative thing, and it just kind of erases all the other nine good things that were spoken to you. There's power in words. As a matter of fact, James, the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter to the church in James 4, talks about taming the tongue. Watch what you say. He actually says that words can be like a little spark that sets the whole, a whole forest on fire. Think about the fire in Superior on New Year's and how whatever it was, one little flame, one spark, whatever, and the damage that that did to all these homes and businesses and the wind just pushed it, boom. I mean, that's, that's the visual he wants us to get, that our words have power. And you might be like me thinking, Ugh, Stop meddling, Scott. But how do we overcome? How do we tame our tongues? How do we make sure that we're saying you know, good things over people? I had this illustration come to me many, many years ago. There was a movie with John Wayne called The Cowboys. And uh, they had this horse that they couldn't break or tame. And so they brought the horse into a river. And the, the water was about shoulder high on the horse. And so when somebody would get on the horse, uh, it wouldn't have the ability to move and it would get used to having someone riding it. Brilliant. And I remember thinking, I need to take my words, my mouth, and let the Holy Spirit just take it into the waters of the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to change the way we speak and listen before I speak. <laughs> Be slow to speak and quick to listen. And then he, another thing he talks about a lot is to guard our path. No, guard our eyes. Path's next. Um, guard your eyes. That whole thing that we're seeing in these stories of people who, who take that which is forbidden, they see, they desire, they take. It was David and Bathsheba. He saw her bathing. She was pretty, so he desired her, and he took her. I mean, that pattern is everywhere. He says, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Guard your eyes. I remember seeing things as a, as a little kid that I can still see in my mind. And at some point, our innocence gets stolen, whether it's our fault or the fault of somebody or something else or, or society. But be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil. And then, guard your path. Guard where you go. I mean, that's just what Solomon is talking about here. He says, give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or left. Keep your foot from evil. And then the last thing to guard comes from the Apostle Paul that came to me. Guard your thoughts thought life. We need to guard our thought life. Listen to what Paul says in, in Philippians 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, we present your request to God. 
And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Then he gives us a pattern of what to think about in our thought life. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Let our thought life be bathed things that are good. Be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil. That's how to guard our, our thought life. And I get it. We live in a fallen, broken world. Sometimes we're going to see things that we didn't intend to see and all of that. That's, that's part of it. And, you know, certain things are redeemable and, and you know, every person's in a different place with their struggles and, and all of that. The bottom line is Trust the plot. Do you remember the first message when in creation when God looked at all that he had created and he looked at Adam and Eve and he, and he said, it's good. This is good. That's the plot of Scripture is it's good. Anger and jealousy, when we start entertaining that in our minds, um, are going to... We'll end up acting out our thoughts. Thoughts lead to feelings. Feelings lead to action. So it starts here in our minds. And we got to trust the plot, the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is 2 Corinthians 5. I believe it's verse 19. God the Father was in God the Son, Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us or man's sins against us. That's the good news. He did everything. He did everything in defeating death, sin, and the evil one. So what do we do? I would, if you're struggling today with something that you know is something that can corrupt you, something that's not in the will and plan of God, if you're struggling with that, we all are to some degree. And some, maybe it's more prevalent in, in, your, in your life right now. Here's what I would say to you. Bring it to Jesus. Bring Jesus into your struggle. He's the only one that can heal us. Bring him into the problem. Bring him into the issue. Don't try to will it away. Don't try to pretend it's not there or just keep the cycle going. But bring Jesus into it. He's the healer. And he can heal us from everything. Change your mind change your direction. That's a daily thing. To have a repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. And that's a daily, daily practice. Will you stand with me? Here's what I know. Jesus is not into condemnation. He's not into shame. We do that. If you're feeling some guilt and shame right now, give that to Jesus. If you're feeling conviction, thank Him for that because conviction is from the Holy Spirit. Condemnation is of the evil one. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So give that over to him. 
invite him in to the struggle. Let me pray. Father, would you shine your light in the person of Jesus Christ into our minds, into our lives, that we can move away from the things that are traps meant for our destruction and to take away the joy of knowing you and walking in your ways. Help us, Lord, to embrace your truth. And Lord, we, we corporately together and as individuals, we repent of the darkness of the mind and entertaining anything in the darkness. And we run to you, our Father, who loves us infinitely and perfectly. God, if anyone listening right now has never embraced the gospel, never agreed with you, Lord Jesus, that you are Savior and you are Lord, may that happen right now. We agree with you, Jesus. We agree with you, Father, that you're good. You showed us that you're good in your Son. We're grateful for that. We're grateful that we know what you're like, Father, because of the life of Jesus. And you've given us the Holy Spirit and one another. I pray that us as a church family, we would, we would uh, walk with one another in our mess, in our messes, and, and uh, we'd be there for one another. We'd carry one another's burdens. We'd be helpful to one another. And I thank you for the joy of the Lord to be our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.